<laughs> Thank you. My name is Adam, in case you guys uh, don't know. I say it every week anyway, but some of you may have forgotten. Um, <laughs> and I'm preaching from a couch today. I've never done that before, other than first service. This is the second time I've done it now. So uh, thought I'd, before I jump in, give an update, uh, we really thought, Chris, uh, Pastor Chris, who did a phenomenal job. I mean, I, I cannot thank Chris enough for uh, two things. One is his friendship. Uh, two is his love for Jesus and this church. Uh, and he did a phenomenal job and does continue to do a phenomenal job. So he stepped in. He met with me maybe, I don't know, it was a number of weeks back. And he said, hey, I'm going to be on vacation the first week of June. Do you think you could preach that the week so he wouldn't have to come right back and preach? And I said, that's ah, five and a half, almost six weeks. Yeah, I can do that. I can at least sit on a stool. Well, I can't. Um, matter of fact, I sent an update out this past week. You guys know I was going to be going to the doctors this coming week. We actually ended up going early, went earlier this week because the pain in my foot just keeps growing and increasing. And so um, it, it, it's revolving around the nerves. And they tell me that it's all normal. Um, I'm on the upper end of normal, the edge of normal, but it's normal for an incision. That My incision runs lower heel all the way to right below the knee. And they said with an incision that large, um, you disrupt a lot of nerves. Healing's very long, a foot because of the circulation troubles already as your foot hangs. So there's all kinds of good stuff. So they gave me the wonderful news of three more weeks on those things, which I was hoping to be off. And I'm going to be starting rehab uh, physical therapy in another week and a half, week or so. So that's kind of the update. I cannot tell you from the bottom of my heart, um, I can't just express enough appreciation for the cards, uh, the prayers, the meals, um, the ice cream, the, the slice of Italy some of you have brought by, uh, the mowing of a lawn, uh, the care for my wife and my kids. We had one, per, one family brought over gifts for our kids, and they opened up. It was just like a dollar store stuff, and it was just really cool to see the care because our kids have, I mean, it's been hard on them, too, to lose their dad for this long. And um, so, again, thank you from the bottom of my heart. Cannot say enough. Final thing I'll say is this. People have asked me, uh, so what are you learning? Uh, what's God teaching you? And I say, I'm learning a lot. This is, and this is not an overstatement. I would say... Some of you know my story and the heartache that I've had coming with a failed church plant in Charlotte and the marital struggles that came from that time, um, being out of ministry for a season, working at um, Super Value. Uh, Some of you know the the difficulty that season was. I would honestly and sincerely put this a notch higher than that with my just the struggle that I've had internally even. Um, And the thing I've learned that I'm learning as I walk through this, I've never had anything like this. And so Johnny Erickson Tata, I've, I've learned from her. Some of you know her. She was paralyzed as a teenager and still to this day is. And she loves Jesus, has walked with Jesus all those years. And she talks about suffering. And a lot of times we as Christians look to suffering, like what are we going to learn and what's God going to teach us in the character development. And she makes a point in her book, When God Weeps, where she talks about um, God it doesn't grow us in the midst of pain. He grows us during the healing, uh, during rest. And she likens it to um, working out physically. If any of you go to the gym and work out, you're actually tearing your muscles down. You're actually getting weaker. You aren't growing in that season. You grow when you come home and you rest and you don't work out the next day. Your body begins to rebuild and strengthen. So 
Um, the biggest thing I'd say is hang with me uh, as, as I learn these different lessons. I'm journaling. I'm getting it all out of me, and I have some common themes that are showing up. Uh, and so that's kind of where I'm at, and I'll certainly unfold that as time goes on. The final thing I'll say is this. I've got a new diet plan for you all. I've lost 20 pounds. Now, out of fairness, I know the clap, out of fairness, if I would take off, well, you don't want to see me take my pants off, but anyway, if I would pull this up, take off this boot, you would see a toothpick under here. So some of that weight has just been muscle deterioration. I mean, I've lost a significant amount of muscle. I've been in the boot now since February. Um, but honestly and sincerely, my, uh, this is the first time I put jeans on in, in six weeks. And, uh, man, they were loose. I'm like, whoa, and I'm tightening the belt goes a notch tighter. So I've got a new diet plan. Get, get surgery, lay on your back for six weeks, and whew, nothing like it. Uh, so anyway, with that said, um, let me pray, and then we're going to jump into, can you guys see me okay over here? This, this thing is, I apologize, I, first service, I realized this kind of cuts my view off that way. So let me pray, and then um, we'll jump into the book of Colossians. God, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for your grace and mercy. Uh, we all gather here today um, from different places and different walks and journeys. But well, God, we're all coming, and I believe, anticipating to meet you, uh, to hear from you, uh, to encounter you in a fresh new way, and to leave here after encountering you um, impacted and, and seeing change come in our lives because of it. So God, to then we pray, guide and direct uh, my communication and God, even as just tenuous, being on this couch, a little nervous and never really done this. Uh, so God, direct me. And God, and then I know listening is hard work too. And learning new things is not easy. So be with all of us as we, as we just seek to, to know you better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're in our series, Jesus, period. Uh, we're studying the book of Colossians. Uh, and just kind of talking about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus and Jesus, period. I mean, we don't, it's just Jesus, and that's how we grow, and that's how we do the Christian life. If you turn with me, we're all the way up, we're kind of in the middle of the series, Colossians chapter 2, 16 to 19. If you're not familiar with the Bible, you're new to the Bible, skeptic of the Bible, uh, if you have a Bible, this is, you can kind of see where it's found. You kind of find your way there. Or you have a smartphone. We do have Wi-Fi here in the building. You can find maybe a Bible app and uh, find it there. Don't have a Bible, don't have a smartphone, see us afterwards. We would love to give you a Bible, see me, or see someone at the Welcome Center. We'd love to put one in your hands. Now, we're in this book of Colossians talking about Jesus, and I was so excited when we started this series. We actually talked about it last, I think it was last fall even, and the elders said, let's do, go through the book of Colossians. And I'm like, yeah, it's awesome. I've never preached through the book of Colossians, but it's my, one of my favorite books of the entire Bible. It's also, here's a little tidbit, it's also the only book, the, the Bible school I went to, we learned the Bible in, by books. So we kind of went through things. So I had a class on Colossians. It was the only class that I aced, the only one, believe it or not. Some of you are like, oh, and you're a pastor. It was the only one I got a 100% on. Matter of fact, the, they graded on curves there, and a lot of the other students did really poorly. So I actually ended up like 110% on the book of Colossians. So it's a book that I know, and then I come along, and I haven't preached a lot of it. So I'm kind of bummed now. I'm like, man. So, but here we are in Colossians chapter 2, and this section... The, the cool thing is, as I kind of come back to this, this section captures my life. Um, between these verses all the way to the end of chapter 3 are kind of, if you would pick a section of scripture that kind of paint my life, these are it. Uh, it kind of goes like this. Some of you know, so I'll just give a real brief snapshot. If you log on to our website and you go into the staff, and we all have biographies there, and if you'd read mine, it's a little sketcher. The very first sentence says, I hate religion. 
but I've come to know a God that I love. And it's, that sentence captures my life. I'm not a real fan of religion, but I love God. Now, as I, uh, kind of my life unfolded, I walked away from the rules and the laws that I grew up with as a teenager. Because I was looking for life. I wanted life so bad. I wanted to really live and have life. And I looked at this that I was in, and I'm like, this isn't life. The thing I discovered, though, in walking away, those rules and those laws are there to protect me. So I had all this pain. Though that life was fun for a season, it was a lot of fun. I think for pastors to stand up and say sinning's not fun. Sinning is fun for a season. But then life began to crash in on me. And so I wrestled with, what do I do now? Because the religious system was no life. The non-religious, irreligious system brought no life. What's left? So I was kind of wrestling. And I, through thoughts of attempt, an, an attempt at suicide, I thought, what do I do? I met a guy. I met a lot of people in his journey. But one really sticks out to me. His name was Reed. And when I met Reed, here's what was unique about Reed. Reed was the real deal. He was genuine. He didn't have mask on. He didn't, you know, I was so used to church people and they, you will say hello and they, they're all so fine. But then you're, he was real and genuine and he lived life. He was a former Marine and a former drug addict. And the language that I heard come from his mouth, I spent a weekend with him. He was in the bed above me. I was in the bed underneath in a bunk bed. And the language I heard from him, Jesus was talked in language, lover language. And that was so foreign to me. I grew up in a culture, in a home, in a Christian home, in a Christian church, in a Christian school. And Jesus was not talked like a lover. And I was like, this is different. I want what Reed has. So what I did is I enrolled in the school that Reed attended. I thought, well, I'll go there. And I began to get it. Here's one of the first things I encountered was the fact that I was a sinner. Now, you stop and you say, well, Adam, come on. You grew up in a religious home. You, you grew up knowing all these laws and rules. You certainly knew you were a sinner. You prayed a prayer at age five knowing that you were a sinner. I did. But I think I maybe relate to some of you in this room in saying that I knew I was a sinner. I got spanked seven times in first grade. And then that's in school, in the school itself. And not to, I'm not going to tell you how many times I got it at home. Well, then I... My first grade teacher then moved to fourth grade, and she became my fourth grade teacher. So, I mean, deep, I knew that I was a sinner. I knew I had problems, but, and there's a big but here to this one, I looked at everyone else, and I'd say, but I'm not as bad as them. Even in my days when I walked far from God, I'm like, well, I'm not using drugs. I'm not getting drunk every Friday night. I'm not, and I'd look out at other people and say, I'm a sinner, but I'm a lot better than that. I turn the TV on, I look all around and say, well, I'm really not that bad. And then the, here's the other thing I believe. I grew up in an area like Lancaster County in the Northeast where we've learned how to work really hard. And that's an awesome thing. So I kind of applied this to my spiritual journey thinking, well, okay, I'm kind of bad. Not as bad as them. I know I'm bad. I can fix it. I can work myself out of this. I can make it better. A little hard work, a little ingenuity. We're going to be good. But I began to realize that's not true. Jesus didn't come to make people better. He came to bring dead people to life. And I came face to face with the fact that I was dead and I can't fix it. And then I met a God at this school. I met a God who I'm told loved me. And I met a God who, who I was told, you are made in his image. 
And because of that, he can relate to you and he wants to relate to you and he's for you and he's moving in your direction in the person of Jesus. And then I did what I then understood was what was called to me the exchange plan. Meaning I'm a sinner. Jesus is fully God, fully man and perfect. And he's looking at me and he says, Adam, I'm going to exchange lives with you. I'm going to take your sin. And as Chris right over here in the stage last week, I'm going to nail it to the cross. And when I rose, you rose. I am, that's, that's it. And I'm going to give you my perfect life and I'm going to take your less than perfect life. And suddenly I realized what Reed had now was something I had. I no longer talked about Jesus and God in impersonal terms. And he was now a lover. He was my closest friend. And I began to run with it. It became my mission to know the creator God of the universe through the person of Jesus and then to help others do the same. That was my mission. And suddenly I began to find the life that I craved. Now, you've heard that story before, right? If not for me, you've heard it from others. We don't often talk about the rest of the story. And what I'm going to do this morning, Colossians 2 talks a little bit about the rest of the story. See, the story doesn't end there, does it? You come to know Jesus and you're like, whoa. I mean, Chris talked about this last week. But then life continues. And life continued for me in the, in the form of marriage and interaction with kids and, and in ministry as a church. And suddenly I'm looking around and I realize I'm still struggling with the sin that I struggled with before I really met Jesus. The same anger, the same lust, the same things inside of me are still there. And they were coming out at times with vengeance. I'm like, no, whoa, whoa, no, wait a minute. What's this? So I made it my mission to take care of that, to grow. I worked really, really hard at growing to get to know God. I went to classes. I went to seminars. I went to conferences. I went to counselors. I had friends in accountability groups. And I went to church. And, and I did, I'm, made it my ambition to grow. And then I run into Colossians 2 and the thought that it teaches, the point that I've got to come back to over and over, because what I realized, my obsession with my goodness and my badness was an obsession with me, not Jesus. And I find too often in the church world, this is where we end up and we wrestle day to day and don't even realize it. So Colossians chapter 2 says, hey, if you want to grow, it's going to talk about it today. It's going to give you some really cool things on how to grow. If you want to grow, if you really want to defeat that stuff that's out of joint in your life, it's about Jesus. Matter of fact, I would say it this way. Getting better is not the point. I talk to Christians and even my own language at times, like we talk like that's the goal of the Christian life is get better, overcome your sin. That's not the point of the Christian life. That's a side benefit of the Christian life. I think it comes as a result of the Christian life. Jesus didn't come to make you better. He came to give you life. He came to say, you're dead. You need life. I need to raise you to life. Now, getting better happens as a result of that, and we're going to talk about that. The real point of the Christian life is getting to know and love God. That's the point. In Colossians 2, we're going to look at verses 16 and 19, and then we're going to take Father's Day next week. Then we're going to come back and look at the rest of chapter 2, and that 16 all the way to the end of chapter 2, this is kind of the heart of the, that entire section. We're just going to look at 16 to 19 right now. So let's read them, if you will, if you're there. Uh, chapter 16, or chapter 2, verse 16. It says this, Therefore... 
Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. Or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath. In other words, don't let other people look down at you for the way you worship God and the things that you choose to eat and not eat because of your religion. Don't let people judge you. Verse 17. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. The Kind of the benchmark verse of these few verses. The reality of life is found in Christ. That word in Christ, we talked about that when we opened up this series. That's repeated 17 or 18 times. In Christ. Verse 18. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen. And his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. So this verse is really grabbing the mystical faith that actually identifies our culture. The visions and dreams and God speaking to me and getting up in a spiritual mountaintop and all those great things. And we go into great energy to talk about where I've, what I've seen and experienced. And don't be led astray with that. Verse 19. That person, he, has lost connection with the head. There's these clauses from whom the whole body supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews grows as God causes it to grow. So you want to grow right there. It is. How do you grow? You stay connected to the head. If you disconnect yourself from the head, you're not going to grow. And how we live our lives in the Christian life and what we do with these questionable gray area practices are going to do a go a long way to determining whether I grow or whether I disconnect from the head and actually do anything but grow. To unpack these verses, I want to work backwards. I want to look at verses 18 and 19. Then I'm going to come back around to the top and work down and leave 17 to the end. Because 17 kind of, kind of is the heart of the whole thing. But when you look at verses 18 to 19, one of the things that I find interesting, it talks about this sense of false humility. One of the things that I've been convicted of, even as I've been able to take Pastor Chris's messages in the last couple of weeks sitting and not being up here, the religious life can have a tendency to promote pride and self. You say, what? Come on. What really does, and here's how I think it kind of works. Too often, when you leave church, when I leave church, we leave thinking about us. We leave thinking about, oh man, I've got to get rid of that habit. I've got to stop talking to my kids that way. I've got to love my wife more. I've got to interact with my boss better. I've got to work harder. I've got to get rid of this addiction. I have to change. We're thinking about us when we walk out of these doors. Or we're thinking about, man, that was a really good experience this morning. I really felt good. Or we come to be motivated or encouraged. Again, not all that's bad, but oftentimes I find that when we leave buildings like this on Sunday morning, we're oftentimes more consumed with us then we are, do we really meet God and get to know him? Is that what really happened? And so I find that sometimes the spiritual pursuit actually leaves us in a very bad place. I think our culture, if you look at it this week, I'm not going to look at it right now, but 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5 describes, it says, as time goes on from Jesus' death and going back to heaven, as time goes on, Our world will consistently be described as people who are attaining spirituality, but a form of godliness, but denying its power. Our culture today is very, very spiritual. I have no doubt in my mind. Mystical, I'd even call it. We love and we're, I mean, heaven is for real, the book. 
It's why it's so hugely popular. We are a mystical, spiritual culture. Oprah loves it. Dr. Phil loves it. Dr. Oz. I mean, you listen to them. It's a spiritual culture, but it denies its power. Today in our culture, experience is king, I've found. In fact, I've even fallen as if you've ever heard me talk, one of the things I'll say a lot is I push back on people who come to the church and say, Adam, your job is to teach, 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 doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. And I say, okay, I push back on that. That's not fully the job of the church. It's important that we teach and it's important we have sound doctrine. That's not the heart of the church. You know why? I've been down that road where I've made theology God instead of God God. I've been down that road where I love doing theology rather than loving God. The heart of the church is to help you love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Good teaching and doctrine plays into that. But I get really weary of churches that become so big with teaching and doctrine that it just suffocates the life out of the room. Now, exactly on the flip side, though, there's another side to this that I also get really nervous with. There's a lot of pushback, too, that that says, oh, no, no, no. All that intellectual stuff, no, 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 we don't need it. No, 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 no. Study? What study? I'm not going to study. Why, why doctrine? Who need, and, and, and what I find is today's culture, experience is king. Feeling, emotions. Most of our decisions in today's culture are emotionally made, not intellectually made. And our culture is, runs wild with this. Now, what I would say, when you read this text, that's what this text is going after. It's saying, hey, all these people that are seeing visions and, and seeing angels and God working and all this experiential, mystical stuff, but yet they're missing the reality of who God is. So I think it's important that we think hard about God in the Bible. Very important. It's not something we want to let go or, or let our hands off of. In fact, emotional religious pursuit, and I would tag in rules and duty and penance, which we're going to talk about in the coming verses uh, in two weeks. Those things, when they're done, they're done with the intention of growth, but they often produce false humility because it's like we, we base everything on feelings. And things begin to, we begin to worship a figment, a God of our own imagination. But it looks so good and feels so good, and I feel so good when I leave these places, and it's just false humility. Now, verse 19, look at what says happen. This is so important. Please don't miss this. You lose connection with the head. So you stepped out to grow, and the very thing you stepped out to do because of the way you went about doing it, you actually did not attain. You actually don't grow. So how do we get it? Look at verse 16 now. Let's come back around to verse 16. There's a struggle that kind of leads us to these places I think we all will relate to. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. So there you have it. This, this, I love this statement. It's a command. Therefore, do not what? Let anyone judge you. It's a command. I mean, it's, it's an actual, I mean, it's go do this. Now, I ask this question. How do you do this command? I mean, the people around you right now, if you just look at them, what do you do? Say, don't judge me? How well does that go? Some of you are wearing clothes that the person beside you may not like, and they're like, hey, you can't come into church because you're wearing our clothes, and you say back then, well, don't judge me. I mean, how well does it usually go? I mean, I found, I found this so interesting, this command, do not let anyone judge you. I'm like, my goodness, I can't control how my kids think, 
let alone my wife, let alone me. I can't even control me at times. How am I to carry out, don't let others judge me? How do I do that? So obviously Paul, the writer, is not talking about your ability to sway and influence and manipulate and control and to form the minds of the people around you so that they don't look down at you. There's obviously something else going on here. I think the phrase has more to do with our desire to conform and the pressure to conform to what others think of us. I think that's more what it's going after. The battle's more internal, and the battle's more what you do inside of yourself than it is what the other person does to you. It's also about our propensity. Please hear this one. This one really struck me. It's also about our propensity to make enemies of the people who disagree with us. Now, I'll put enemies in quotes because I know we aren't, like, going out at war with them, and we aren't. But we have this tendency with people we disagree with is to make enemies. And what ends up happening, we lose the freedom that we have in Jesus as a result. In fact, what I would say is I'd say it this way. We don't have to protect our goodness, our correctness, or our convictions. We just hold them. In general, when we have enemies, the people around us that we struggle with, I'd say eight or nine times out of ten, the problem is not the person. The problem is what's taking place inside of you. The biggest battle you fight is within yourself not with the person sitting beside you across the table or across the room. The biggest battle you fight is what's taking place in here. And I think that's what Paul's going after here. Don't let others judge you. When I'm convinced of something and I'm able to live at peace that God, before God, God says, Adam, that's okay to live that way. And I'm convinced in my heart and in my own mind, I don't have to create enemies with other people. I can just live. Let me give you an illustration as to really make this practical. I think Facebook provides us all kinds of wonderful... Poor Facebook. We beat up on Facebook all the time. Facebook gives us all kinds of wonderful illustrations of this. A few weeks ago, it was Mother's Day. I wasn't here. I absolutely love Mother's Day. It is one of my favorite holidays that we celebrate here in the Western world. The reason being is my mom has shaped me and made a huge impact in my life, where I'm at spiritually. And I love watching my wife, Tanya, make a gigantic impact in our home, not only in our kids' lives, but in my life. And I look at human history, and behind almost every great leader, male leader, stands a phenomenal mom. George Washington, Abraham Lincoln. I'm not even talking church leaders. I'm just talking people that have changed the world. Oftentimes, women have made a huge impact in our world. So I love a day that we get to celebrate women and moms. Now, so I'm on my back, and I'm all bummed because I can't be at church. I couldn't even get my wife a card. I totally blanked out on I'm getting surgery at the end of April. Mother's Day comes up in two weeks. I had no card to give her. I, I, I felt horrible. So I'm laying on my back, you know, and I'm in. We have these wonderful things called smartphones now. So I'm laying here, you know, doing this, reading down, scrolling down through. And all over the place... I'm reading these blogs by people that I don't even know. I've never even met them. Telling the church how horrible they are for celebrating Mother's Day. And I'm getting all worked up. I'm like, what are these guys talking about? And you start have these imaginary, you ever done this? Someone posts something, you're like, what an idiot. What are, they don't know what they're doing. And you just start going on all these imaginary conversations. Now, the point that they were making was not a bad point. Please hear this. It was different from mine, but not wrong. 
The point that they were making was when you come to Mother's Day, there will be people sitting in your church that can't have children. And that's hard. So when you stand on stage and celebrate moms, they feel and they hurt. Or there are people in your church who, who have lost children. Or there are people in your church who've had really cruddy moms. Or there are people in your church that aren't married and they want to be married so bad. And, they, and so that's the point they're making. So what their challenge was, was to pastors, was, hey, if you're going to celebrate Mother's Day, do it, make sure you honor it. So here I am laying in my back, getting all worked up, because this one blog, I mean, it all but said churches shouldn't even honor Mother's Day because it's just a pagan holiday. And I'm sitting there, and by the t- half an hour time goes by, kid you not. And what have I been doing for half an hour? Crafting the response in my mind that I'm going to put in the page at the bottom so I just set them all straight. <laughs> we do this, right? I mean, I alone in this? I mean, we do it. It may not be on Facebook. It may be with the person at the water cooler. Maybe your friend or your sister or your mom or your brother or your husband or your wife. They begin to say and do things that you don't agree with. And we make them enemies. And we lose all kinds of freedom because we take all this time and energy in our minds talking to them. And they aren't even there. My son came home when I was on my back. One of my sons came into my bedroom where I was kind of confined. And he says, hey, dad, I have a question for you. I asked him how church was. He says, good. He says, I have a question for you. Why at church are there some people who dress up really fancy and other people who just wear shorts and a t-shirt? I said, well, that's a really good question. Apparently someone had talked about that and he had observed it that morning. And so he wanted to know, why do they do this? I said, well, buddy, I'll give you my best answer. I said, on the one side, you have people who really passionately believe that when they come to God, they come to worship God, they're coming to almighty creator, all-powerful, all-holy God of the universe. And you bring your best. You bring your A-game to worship him. That's what they believe, and they really believe it. I said, it's kind of like if President Obama has you over for lunch. What are you going to wear? Are you going to wear jeans or uh, shorts and a T-shirt and flip-flops? He goes, no, probably not. I said, you're going to put your best on. to go. It's the same thing. God is obviously much bigger than President Obama. I said, that's the one side. On the other side, I said, this group over here really passionately believes that God is, hates pretense. He hates pretense. God wants you. He wants your heart. He doesn't want you to hide and cover up. He wants the genuine, real thing. So this side says, let's not make church about covering up and putting a mask on. Let's make church about a real connection and unmasking of ourselves. So that's why I kind of told him, and not all in that language. I tried to make it as kid-friendly as I could. And he looks at me and says this, well, which one's right? Now, this is hard for a young elementary mind, but I think it's hard for our minds too. I looked back and I said, well, neither one, buddy. They're both right. It all depends on the person's heart and why they're doing it. But see, in our world, I've had some horrible statements made to me as a pastor because I dress the way I do. Terrible, hurtful things said to me. Because I find that people, they can't just say, well, that's you and this is, we can't let it go. It's like, well, and here's what I've learned. We think we have to change control and, and work our, over there because our acceptability before God is at stake. I've got to be right. If I'm wrong, God may not be happy with me. We aren't living from a place of Jesus being everything. We're living from a place of looking to others and looking to my belief system to make me acceptable. 
And when we do that, we lose a lot of freedom as we spend a lot of energy looking to the people around us to tell me if I'm okay. It's not the gospel of Jesus. If I fail as a pastor in every single area, God help you and God help me, I hope that doesn't happen. I hope there's one thing that I succeed in, and it's this one right here. That we as a church, you as a person, and me as a pastor have a profound conviction that obeying God will merit me absolutely nothing. In that statement, I'm not putting obedience down. Obedience comes, and it's very important. Pastor Chris did a phenomenal job last week with that. But you have a relationship with God. You are justified before God because Jesus died, was buried, and rose again for you, period. And if it's not Jesus that justifies you, you're not justified. My correct thinking, my correct beliefs on how I dress and what songs we sing and and how we handle Mother's Day and all the other stuff doesn't justify me before God. Jesus, period, justifies me before God. And somehow in the church, we know that coming into our relationship with God, but we forget it real quick. And we start to attach a little bit of our performance to our acceptability before God. Is God happy with me? Well, let's see. I didn't look at porn this week. I didn't overeat. I didn't drink too much. Okay, God's happy with me. I'm okay. No. Jesus, period. I want to share a movie clip. It's from um, the movie Ragamuffin. The Ragamuffin, the movie, captures Rich Mullins' life. Some of you know Rich Mullins. He was a 1980s singer into the 90s. Um, he, was, he, he gets upset at this. He's, he died in a car accident in his 40s. And he was, always, he was known as the guy who did the song Awesome God. You know the song? Our God is an awesome God. He, and I'm going to stop right there. I saw some heads nodding. You picked it up. You know what I'm talking about. So we're going to just end right there. But you guys know. So that's kind of what he was known for. He was a very intelligent songwriter. He pushed back on the religious order of things. And he just was, he had a darkness to him that he couldn't quite figure out. And he wrestled his whole life being on stage in front of people. But then he struggled with alcohol off stage. On stage in front of people, telling people God loves them, but wrestling in his own privacy about does God really love unconditionally? And, and how does God's love work? He had a dad that was emotionally abusive and a hard, hard father that drove a lot of this out in his life. And so this movie came together and did a phenomenal job, I think, of everything I've read, capturing his life. And this scene you're going to watch is a friend. This is later in his life. It's not far from his car accident. And he is wrestling immensely to the point where all of his friends are seeing him ruin his life with alcohol and and just be self-destructive on everyone around him. And so he has this really close friend and bandmate. They're driving together in his Jeep, which he owned. I mean, he, Rich Mullins took, he, he made millions of dollars, millions and millions of dollars, but he only would take the amount of money that an average blue-collar worker in America would take to live on. That's all he'd live on. So he drove these old cars. So he was driving with his friend, and his friend's going to ask him, hey, will you listen to this preacher? And so what this clip is, it's him listening to the preacher. The preacher's Brennan Manning. He wrote the book, Abba God, and some other things, and whatever your opinion is of Brennan Manning. This is going to capture, word for word, Brennan Manning's sermon as played by the actor in this movie. So go ahead and watch this clip. And, uh, it's a powerful clip. I love the statement. I love when Brennan Manning says, I've, 
utterly convinced and come to believe that on Judgment Day, that's one question and one question only. Now, you don't read this in the Bible anywhere. This is subject to this guy's thoughts and imagination. But we're going to get asked, did you believe that I loved you? When we wrestle with and grapple with the love of God in Jesus, it transforms life. It gives you power that is unimaginable. But a lot of us push back on it because we're like, well, can he really love me as I am? A lot of us have grown up in the church or begin to realize, man, I have got some real issues. Does he really embrace me? I mean, I know I became a Christian, but here I am wrestling. And I want to say, cannot stress enough how important it is to have a burning conviction that nothing you do will merit you God's affection. It's already there and available to you in the person of Jesus. Look at verse 17. This it strikes the exclamation point to me in this whole section. Um, and it'll, again, we'll carry this in even the next week or in two weeks. It says, these are a shadow of the things that were to come, referring to these dietary practices and these worship practices that were just talked about. Then, in other words, Paul's saying these were shadows. In other words, what he's confronting in his name is you were doing these to gain acceptance, but they were just shadows. They're pointing to something bigger. What they're pointing to The reality, however, it says, is found in Christ. Do you want life? Do you want to overcome your addiction? Do you want to change? Do you want all that stuff? It's found in Christ. Steve Brown, who some of you know, some of you listen to WDAC in this area. Steve Brown, I believe he's still on in the afternoon. Key Life, I believe is the name of his radio program. He has that phenomenal radio voice. Any of you know him? He has that deep guttural. And I'm like, man, that's a cool voice. But anyway, Steve Brown, written a number of books. Some of you have seen my inner darker secrets and dreams and fantasies. Uh, but anyway, holiness hardly ever becomes a reality until we care more about Jesus than about our holiness. Profound thought. Like we're going to talk about in a few weeks that actually just the opposite happens. When we start to focus on law and holiness and growing and changing, we actually get the opposite, a very unholy life. We're going to talk about that in two weeks at great length. Let me give you a couple of verses that kind of build on this. First, uh, Colossians 1.10. This is a verse we already looked at, so I thought it would be kind of cool to come back to. It says, then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord, and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while, you will grow as you learn to know God and better and better. So how do you grow? Get to know God. This next verse we read in our quiet time this past week, uh, our reading plan, our journal, if you guys are with that with us. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Pastor Chris talked about this reality from the book of Colossians last week. As God's partners, we beg you not to accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness and then what? Ignore it. We have a tendency to do this in the church. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God got me into heaven with his mercy and his grace. And then we kind of turn our back and we start to come over here to this this little area called law and obedience. And we focus so hard on our goodness and our badness. And Paul would say, you've ignored the grace of God. And Chris did a phenomenal job last week unpacking um, that one. Brian Chaffel in a book called Holiness by Grace. He's a professor out in St. Louis at a seminary. I want to read a quote to you that I think captures this point so beautifully. It says, if the law is merely our commandment, we cannot delight to do the will of God. 
So if all it is is what you need to do or don't do, you're never going to really delight and do the will of God. He goes on to say, we can perform duties but cannot delight in them. Though we may think them needful as something necessary for glory and for heaven, the inevitable consequence of obedience without delight is actually the erosion of holiness. Romans 7, 8 would be the verse to look at that underscores that. Where law increases, Romans 7, 8 says, sin increases. As I think about this, people will start to push back on this, and I, I push back on this. But here's what I'd say. The degree of my appreciation reflects my previous degree of desperation. People will say at times, well, Adam, 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 I hear this message of God's love, God's unconditional, unmerited favor, and nothing I do merits me, God. And I hear this all the time, but Adam, isn't that called cheap grace? I mean, doesn't that promote me going out and doing whatever I want and just coming back? Because I can say, well, God, you'll forgive me. You're good with that, right? People that ask that question, and I've asked it at times, I think have not come to the depths of their own depravity and the love of God in their lives. That's like me saying this. Well, (laughs) that's like me saying, well, I'm going to go out and cheat on my wife. She loves me. She'll forgive me. You guys would be aghast if I said that or even endorsed that. You would think you are sick in the head. You don't understand marriage. And I say, right, exactly. And marriage is the description of a relationship with God. I'm not going to cheapen it, cheat on him and run around because I understand how lost I was. I understand how dead I was. I understand that without him, I would be nothing. And out of that flows this heart of affection and love. And love is a powerful, powerful motivator. Matter of fact, you'd say it this way. Things impossible to others are easy to them that love. Love knows no difficulties. Isn't that true? Think through your life, your hobbies, your houses, your boats, your cars, your girlfriends, your boyfriends, your husbands and your wives, the things that you have loved. Don't we go and work our tails off to have them? And sometimes others will look in. I mean, I, I, think, of, I think of me, the shy, quiet, introverted Adam, um, maybe not so much quiet anymore, but still very introverted. When I met my wa- soon to be, was going to be my wife, Tanya, man, I stepped out. Sure, I brought some junior hires along and a golf cart to holler across the field, but man, I'm going to go ask her to go out with me. I saw a woman that moved my heart, and when my heart was moved, I moved towards her. And I worked my tail off that whole summer trying to get to know and put myself in a position to get to know this girl that I wanted to marry. And if someone would have said to me, Adam, you're crazy. You're wasting all your money. You're wasting all your time. You're, you're doing all this stuff. I would have said, but I love her. I want to marry her. I didn't even think about the hard work. And that's our relationship with God. So grace isn't cheap. Love is powerful when we really grasp it. I use this illustration I heard from a, a pastor. This pastor talked about when he was a kid, he loved woodworking with his father. Absolutely loved it. And he, one of his favorite tools as a child was watching his dad take the carpenter's plane and slide it back and forth across the wood. And he describes it as he tells the story in a very powerful way. He talks about as the, that crooked piece of wood or that rough wood would slowly smooth itself out. And to him in his little elementary mind, it was like magic. It was just like, Wow. So when someone came to his office to repair a door, he was all the more excited to see when this guy pulled out a carpenter's plane. And this guy starts working on this door to get the door to fit right. 
And the pastor looks at him and says, isn't that the funniest thing? Like with joy and excitement in his voice, the guy looks back and says, I haven't had joy in this for 20 years. The guy leaves, packs up his tools and goes home. The pastor goes to shut the door and he realizes it sticks. It doesn't work. The lesson of the story, the task that he took so little joy in, he did not do well. Love is powerful. When your reality is in Jesus, when Jesus is your all in all and you understand I was lost, I am totally and completely separated from this holy, magnificent God of love without Jesus. It's only in Jesus that he makes me right and acceptable. Jesus, period. And I understand the depths of my desperation without him. The natural response is affection of the heart. And when the affection of the heart comes and we take joy, we do hard things called obedience. But the obedience flows as a result, not gaining God's merit and favor. And that's this verse, verse 17. These things were shadows, but your reality is found in Jesus. Don't let others judge you. Now, I believe that most of you, again, as I said this, I believe most of you came in here this morning and you said, I want to grow. I really believe that. I also believe 99% of you understand how out of joint the world is. At some level, most of you in this room understand things are not good. They are not as they ought to be. Right now, some of you can think of an addiction that you know you need this change. Some of you can think of the communication that you're having with your wife or your children that is not loving, supportive, and kind. Some of you can think of the money that you're hoarding and, and grabbing hold of, and you're not a, you don't have a giving heart and spirit. Some of you can think of the lust that's controlling. Some of you can think of the alcohol and the addictions. Some of you can go on down throughout the list. And you know, life's not as it ought to be. Some of you can sense the, the inner depression and darkness, the anxiety, the fear. You don't have peace. And if you don't always feel it inside of you, when you look around at the world, you see it. The world's out of joint. And so we come to places like this and we say, well, let's make it right. Let's put it back together. Let's grow. Well, again, I cannot say it enough. The point is not getting better. If you're coming in here just focused on putting things back together, that's a great place to start. But that's not the focus of Christianity. The point is a call to Almighty God saying to you, he's looking at you right now saying, hey, get to know me. I love you and I'm for you. I know the junk that you've done. I know the things you've said already this morning, the thoughts that you've had. I love you. Come to me. Honestly and sincerely, open yourself up to me. Allow me in the person of Jesus to forgive you to give you grace and mercy. Allow your life to be found in Jesus' perfection and allow Jesus to then live inside of you and you in Jesus. And let's go on a journey together. And then the battle of the life, the battle of the Christian life, then is what Chris talked about last week, constantly, daily coming back to that place of saying, I'm forgiven, I'm loved. I'm separated from God without Jesus. He makes me right. His mercies are new every morning. And I'm going to go live it now today. Not, 
being consumed with our goodness and our badness and trying to figure out how to change it. All it's going to do is bring death and destruction in the end. God, thank you so much for Jesus. God, this message, I'm, I just confess, this is a message that I have wrestled with and wrestled with and wrestled with in my life. To know that I do nothing that merits you. To know that you look down on an Adam Nagel who's broken, who's sinful, who has dark thoughts and anger, and you say, I love you. God, it almost makes me uncomfortable at times and I push back. But God, when I really come to grips with the fact that I can't fix my brokenness, only you can. I can't bring myself to life, only you can do that. God, I thank you for Jesus. God, I pray that every person right now in this room wrestles at some level with your love. I pray that they'd open themselves up to it. I pray that they've received it. God, if there's people in this room that have never even honestly accepted Jesus in that way, God, I pray that this morning be the morning they just stop and say, man, God, forgive me. I trust you that Jesus is who he says he is. God, thank you for that love. May we be utterly convinced that our obedience will not merit us a thing with you. And God, from that place of love, may we live radically obedient to you as a result of you moving towards us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.